Well, it's good to be with you again uh, this evening. And if you have a Bible with you, we're turning back to Leviticus chapter 1. And uh, we'll read uh, the whole of this chapter together this evening. Leviticus chapter 1. Let's uh, hear God's words. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar, and he shall cut it into his pieces with his head and his fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off his head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. And he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. And he shall cleave it with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Amen. May the Lord give us understanding as we come to look at this passage this evening. Now, I said last week we were looking at these offerings, and uh, this evening we come to the first of these offerings, the burnt offering that's recorded here in Leviticus chapter 1. And if you remember, we, we tried to sort of lay a foundation last week 
um, and we looked at a number of things that concern the offerings as a whole. And it's good to keep some of those things in mind, particularly the first few that I mentioned, that primarily, of course, that these offerings focus on Christ, that this is revealing to us Christ and his work, particularly the burnt offering revealing his death at Calvary. And of course, we also thought in those points that Christ is pictured in every part of the offerings and that he fulfills every part of the offerings, that these have now finished Christ came, of course, not to do away with the law. He came, said he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfil it. And he did that when his work was finished at Calvary. It was done, it was finished. So with that platform in mind, particularly that we're thinking of Christ, we should have our, our minds tuned this evening to be looking for Christ as we come to the burnt offering. Now, the burnt sacrifice is the most common offering in the scriptures. It's the primary offering. It's the offering that always comes first. We noted last week about the intimate connection between the various offerings and the, the, the burnt offering was the one that you always brought first before you brought a meat offering or a peace offering and so on. And as you read through the scriptures you'll often notice this. It will talk about burnt offerings and sacrifices and it shows that there was always, nearly always a burnt offering was offered first to the Lord. And It's of primary importance. You'll notice if you go back into Genesis that this is an offering that was made by Noah. Uh, You remember Noah offered a burnt offering when he came out of the ark in um, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20 and 21. He built an altar unto the Lord and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. You go into Genesis chapter 22 and... This is the offering that Abraham was told and instructed to offer to the Lord when he was told to take his son, his only son, the son that he loved, Genesis 22 and verse 2. And it tells us that he was to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains. So this is a a sacrifice and an offering uh, that was already known to people. It was an offering that I believe was offered right back in Genesis chapter 3 by the Lord and we'll perhaps see something of that um, later on. But this is, as when we come to Leviticus 1 then, the people knew about these offerings but the Lord in a sense was writing them down, codifying them for the people and giving them very specific and inst- very you know, tight instructions as to how this offering was to be offered. And of course it was the offering that was performed in the morning and evening sacrifice. You can read that in Exodus 29 and uh, verses 38 through to 42 there. This was the offering that was to be continually burnt throughout their generations and it was to be burnt in the morning and in the evening. Exodus 29, 38 uh, and following talks there about taking a lamb and all the things that they had to do. Verse 39, they shall offer it in the morning and the other lamb thou shalt offer at evening. And verse 42 says, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations. So this was uh, the most common offering that we find in the scriptures. And uh, as I said, hopefully we'll see something of why I think it was an offering that was laid down right at the very beginning after sin came into the world in 
Genesis chapter 3. But what I want to do this evening really is just to walk through the verses here in Leviticus chapter 1. And as we do so, I want us to notice a number of things about Christ and his offering as we go through uh, these verses. And you'll notice in uh, verse 2 there, the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring an offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. He says that you're to bring an offering unto the Lord. And it shows to us, doesn't it, that uh, these offerings were for God. They were not for man. Man, of course, had many benefits that flowed from the offerings, but ultimately these were offerings to the Lord. And that's an expression that you'll find over and over again in these offerings. You go into chapter 2, for example, in verse 1, and any, if you offer a meat offering unto the Lord, you'll see this expression, or before the Lord, repeated over and over again. These were offerings that were given to God. You see, God assumes that men will want to seek him. He assumes that men will want to come and draw near to him and bring their offerings to him. And he assumes that man will want to bring tokens of homage and praise to God and to offer love to him. Of course, God loveth a cheerful giver, doesn't he? And he expected man to come to the tabernacle and to bring his offerings. And these offerings were primarily for, for God and for his benefit in a sense. So I want to just notice then the first thing here as we go through these verses, the first thing that we notice about Christ and his offering, and the first is this, that Christ's offering was a sinless offering. You notice that in verse 3 there. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. And of course we touched on this last week with this repeated phrase about being without blemish. I don't want to focus on this especially this evening, but as we thought last week, it was a perfect offering that the offerer had to bring. It had to be pure, it had to be without blemish, it couldn't have any default or defect, it couldn't be a lame animal, a diseased animal, as we said last week, it had to be perfect. And of course, it's a picture of us, of Christ, isn't it? And his sinlessness and his perfection. Christ, of course, was the one who he was perfect in, in every part of him. And this speaks here, doesn't it, of his purity and his perfection. Christ's holiness, his death, was the only death of a pure and perfect man. His death was the death of the only sinless man. In actual fact, if you read the account of the crucifixion, you'll find that there are six different people in the account of the crucifixion who testify to the purity and the sinlessness of Christ. And in actual fact, if you... Uh, Pilate's one of those people and I think uh, if you look at the accounts carefully and you put them all together I think Pilate on five separate occasions testifies that he could find no fault in Christ. Christ was pure and perfect throughout all of his life when he was reviled he reviled not again. He was wholly harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners as we thought of last week. But if you go into verses 6 through to 9 there's another element here because it says there that when the offering was brought, this animal was brought, it was killed and it was slain, and then it was divided into its pieces. And you'll see there that it talks about laying these pieces in verse 7 and verse 8, and we have there the head mentioned and the fat, verse 9, the inwards, 
and the legs <coughs> and the inwards and the legs were to be washed in water. You might ask, well, what was the, the purpose of, <coughs> excuse me, for dividing this animal up? Well, it was to check that every part was perfect. You know, when you opened up the animal and it, you might have found that it was riddled with a cancer or riddled with some disease or there was some imperfection when you opened it up. And so it was to check that the animal was an animal that was without blemish. Presumably there would have been people who thought they could get away with it, bring a faulty animal, a defective animal. You could imagine, can't you, the, in the days of Christ, the Pharisees, when they were selling offerings in the temple, would have wanted to sell off a defective animal. But no, it had to be cut up and divided so you could see and check that the animal was pure. And of course, all the different elements here represent elements of Christ and his life. The heads. The head in scripture speaks of the thoughts and intentions and, and the desires of somebody. And of course, Christ was pure and perfect in every thought, wasn't he? You think then of uh, the inwards. The inwards speak of the affections, don't they, so often? And of course, Christ was perfect in his love and his devotion to his heavenly Father. We read there of the, the legs as well. The legs speak of action and where somebody goes and walks in their life, their movements. And of course, Christ, he never placed a step, did he, outside of his Father's will. He was perfect in everything that he did. And it speaks there too of the fat, laying the fat. And of course, when you burn fat, it produces an intense flame. It speaks of Christ and his intense burning love, his love for his Father, his love to do his Father's will. He sought, didn't he, to love the Lord his God of all his heart and of all his soul and all his strength and of all his mind. You see, Christ in every part, every aspect of him, wherever you test Christ, he was sinless. And so as we see here this, this offering that was without blemish, it points us to Christ and his perfection and his purity. And of course, we have to pause, don't we, as God's people. And remember, we were thinking last week that the offerings also speak of us and our love for God and how we should reflect how our lives should be a sacrifice for him and when we look at our own lives and we divide our lives up into our thoughts and our intentions and our desires and our affections and every part of our life we have to confess don't we that we're sinners before a holy God and isn't it wonderful that we have a saviour though who was sinless and who was pure and so that's the first thing there we see about Christ in this offering. It was an animal that was without blemish. But notice also it was a voluntary sacrifice. Christ's offering was a voluntary offering. Notice there in verse 3, you to bring this offering that was without blemish and he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle. You see, this, the person who brought this offering wasn't to be forced or coerced into doing it. They weren't to have their arm twisted, as it were. This was to be something of their own free will to come and to bring this offering. And it reminds us that Christ's offering was a voluntary offering. You know, reverently speaking, Christ's arm didn't have to be twisted, did it? Christ was willing to come into this world. He voluntarily stepped in and took the place of us. He willingly became a man with all the weaknesses of human flesh and so on, and he voluntarily went to Calvary. Think of those wonderful verses that tell us that he set his face as a flint to the cross. 
We'll turn to Psalm 40. It speaks of the voluntary offering of Christ, how Christ was willing to come into this world. Psalm 40 and verses 6 and 7 and 8 in particular. Listen to these words. This is speaking of Christ. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. This is, this is the words of Christ. And Christ says, look, I, I willingly came. The book spoke of me, the Bible spoke of me, I made a covenant in time past, the covenant of redemption, that I would come into this world to save a people for myself, and I willingly came. He says, I delight to do thy will. He delighted to do the Father's will. And we can think of so many other places. Think of Philippians chapter 2, that wonderful passage that speaks of the humiliation and then the exaltation of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, how he who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, it says in verse 6, but made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a serpent, servant and was made in the likeness of men. And so on you come to verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, Christ willingly came. He willingly set his face as a flint to Jerusalem. You go to Isaiah chapter 50, another passage that speaks of Christ's willingness to come and to face Calvary. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 5 and verse 6. Listen to these words. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheek to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. See, Christ willingly, didn't he, went to Calvary for us. It was a voluntary offering. Even in Gethsemane, there was Christ and in his humanity, he felt the the weight of sin coming down on him. He saw what he was going to have to endure. But even there, As he swept those great drops of blood, didn't he? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Christ went willingly to Calvary. He offered a voluntary offering. You see, read those words there. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will. Think of Christ. Went voluntarily to the cross. And so this offering, this burnt sacrifice, was a male without blemish. It was brought here as his own voluntary will to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. There's that expression again. It's before Jehovah. And in verse 4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. And again, we mentioned this phrase last week as a phrase that appears over and over again in the offerings. This putting the hand upon The sacrifice, or literally, as I said last week, it was a a leaning upon the animal, uh, placing all of your weight. And uh, it really speaks, doesn't it, of two things. It speaks uh, of identification, as I mentioned last week. Here was the offerer standing there. 
and he was identifying himself with the animal and the animal was taking his place and so the two were seen as swapping places and so we see this substitution and of course Christ is our substitute, isn't he? Christ is the one who took our place and died in our room, died in our steads. He died as our substitute, didn't he? He died the just for the unjust. But the laying on of hands not only spoke of uh, this identification, but it spoke of imputation. There was the confessing of sins, the transfer of guilt from the, the sinner to the other. And of course, when we think of Christ, that's true, isn't it? Christ took our guilt and he took our sin. He bore in his own body our sin upon the tree, didn't he? As I was uh, just thinking about this just today, uh, this expression here that he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Eh? Uh, just turn with me to Psalm 88. I didn't, uh, as I was looking up this phrase, uh, I found another place in, in Scripture where this phrase is used in a slightly different way. But it, gives, it helps us to give an understanding of the meaning of this leaning on the animal and confession of sin and the identification and imputation. Psalm 88 and verse 7. We have here the, the very same words in the Hebrew. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me. That expression there, lieth hard upon me, is the same as putting the hands upon the head of the animal. It's the same expression. And I think it's a very helpful way of understanding what's happening there in, in, the, in the burnt offering. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me. And... Uh, it's true, isn't it, of, of Christ's sacrifice. God's wrath, in a sense, lay hard upon us, didn't it? It was heavy upon us. But you see, because of Christ's offering, it's now laid on him, and it was hard upon him, it was heavy upon him. God's wrath was being diverted away from us. That's propitiation, isn't it? God's wrath and anger doesn't fall upon me as, as a guilty sinner. It now it's diverted and it falls upon his son. And it lay hard upon him. Christ, of course, bore our sin, didn't he? Isaiah 53. He bore it as our substitute. That wonderful passage. Isaiah 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, our guilt, our sin was transferred, was imputed as it were to Christ and the wrath now lies hard upon him. You come down to verse 12 of Isaiah 53 where it sums it all up. Those four things, that he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many. You see, Christ was our substitute, bearing our sin. And so going back to Leviticus chapter 1, here the, the hand is placed upon the burnt offering. And then we come in the last part of verse 4 there to a wonderful phrase, and it shall be accepted for him. And it shall be accepted for him. And so we come to another aspect of Christ's work at Calvary, the acceptance of Christ's offering. 
the acceptance. You see, the offerer comes to the door. He brings this, this unblemished animal. He, he brings it in worship. He confesses his sin. And he knows it's going to be accepted. That must have been a wonderful thing. To know that he was going to be an accepted offering. You know, symbolically speaking, God was happy with, with that offering. God accepted the offerer because of the, because of the offering. Now, of course, spiritually we know that it never brought a man or a woman any peace of conscience. It never took away any sins. We know that from Hebrews. We thought about that last week. The man or the woman walked away just as guilty as when they came in, but the offering was accepted. You see, the offering was, was accepted for him, the guilty sinner. You see, we turn away from the type that's here and we turn, of course, to Christ, the anti-type. And you see, his offering was an accepted offering. It was an offering that pleased the Father. And you say, well, where's the, where's the proof of, of the, the acceptance of Christ's offering? Well, Christ was raised from the dead. And he's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. It's been accepted. And of course, as believers in union with Christ, what does Paul say? We're accepted in the beloved. So we stand before God as accepted. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? You see, that's what, when you think about all the other religions, they have no acceptance. They have no idea whether they're, they're ever going to be received by God. I remember hearing a conversation of a Christian with a Jehovah's Witness. And the Christian asked him, you know, are you a part of the 144,000? He said, I don't know. He said, are you going to go to heaven? He said, well, I hope so. He had no idea that, that all the things that he was doing, whether he would actually ever be accepted by God. That's true of every religion out there. You do this and you follow that and you go through rituals and ceremonies and so on and at the end of it you've got no idea whether you'll ever find peace with God. And so, you know, there's so many people who are caught up in, sadly, in other religions and other cults and so on, they have a constant fear, a restlessness. They have no peace. And of course, Paul says to us that we are to present our bodies as acceptable sacrifices to God. You see, that's what we do in return because we've been accepted in the beloved, isn't it? Present your bodies wholly acceptable. This is your reasonable service. And so when we read that phrase there in verse 4, and it shall be accepted for him. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it, when you think of Christ and his work. He's been accepted, and we are now accepted in him. We don't have to do anything. I think that's a, a marvellous thing. I'm a, you know, we're naturally, aren't we, often quite lazy people. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to think that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to bring a sacrifice. We don't have to continually offer things over and over and over again. Christ has done it all, and it's been accepted. But you notice there's something else there, not only is it, Christ offering an, an offering that was accepted, but you notice it's an, an offering that brings atonement. You see the phrase just, it just is even more enriched there in verse 4. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The offering made atonement for the offerer. I love that word atonement, you know, in, in when Tyndale was trying to write the New Testament and he was trying to translate the Bible, I should say, he just couldn't find an English word for the, for the equivalent here. 
And so he had to come up with his own word, didn't he? At one meant. He had to invent a new word to describe what it is to be atoned. It means to have at one meant with God's, to be reconciled with God's. And so when this person brought the offering and it was accepted for him, it made atonement for him. So he could be received by God so that he could have reconciliation with a holy God. And you see it's linked there with the next verse, verse 5, and he shall kill the bullock. It tells us that for atonement to be made, there had to be a death. This animal was slain. It had to be killed. And you see Christ, he made atonement for us and it involved his death. It involved him being slain. Christ had to be crucified. He had to die so that we might have life, so that we might have that reconciliation with God. And you notice too there that the blood was then sprinkled round about upon the altar. Aaron's sons, very specific, it was Aaron's sons. Direct, very specific instructions here. That the blood then had to be sprinkled round about the altar. That of course was the brazen altar, the altar that was outside of the holy place. The one that could be, as it were, seen and was, and was open. Now, I don't want to dwell particularly on this aspect, but there's this, you have to notice there's a distinction between the death of the animal and the sprinkling of the bloods. And the blood was, was sprinkled. So often I think today people talk about uh, Christ shedding his blood and they speak about that in terms of his death. And they speak of it in a, like a figure of speech. Uh, I think the type of speech is a metonym where you use something to describe something else that's, that's associated with it. And I think people talk about the blood of Christ when they're speaking about his death, but there's a distinction between Christ's death and the, and the shedding of his blood. And we should never ever talk lightly about the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is precious blood, and it's incorruptible blood. It's blood that never loses its power. And what the hymn writer says, and there is a fountain filled with blood, isn't it? It says, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Of course, 1 Peter speaks about that. It's blood, of course, that cleanses us as Christians. It's blood from whom we are justified. We're justified by Christ's blood. We have peace through his blood. We have access to the Father through this blood. And so we should never, never, in a sense, just lump the two together, the blood and the death of Christ. There's a distinction. And that's why at the Lord's table we have a distinction between the body and the blood of Christ. And so here, this blood makes atonement for the offerer. The offerer now is at one with God, and that's a wonderful truth. We're reconciled through the death and through the resurrection of Christ as believers. But then we come into verse 6. The blood's been sprinkled. And verse 6 is a wonderful verse. And I think uh, when you read a lot of commentators on Leviticus, they skip over this verse, and I'm... I don't know why, because I think verse 6 speaks to us of another wonderful truth about Christ's offering. And it speaks to us about the righteousness that was procured for us. Do you notice what it says there? And he shall flay the burnt offering. He shall flay the burnt offering. In other words, the offering was uh, killed, yes, but then the skin was taken off. The hide was taken off the animal. And it's not clear here in Leviticus 1, but the hide was not placed upon the altar and burnt. Turn with me to uh, Leviticus chapter 7, because we're given this particular detail here. Leviticus, the latter part of Leviticus 6 and Leviticus 7 
gives further instructions concerning the different offerings. And you come to chapter 7 and you come to verse 8. And it says here, And the priest that offereth any man's burnt offering, even the priest shall have to himself the skin of the burnt offering which he hath offered. So the skin was kept apart. Now the rest of the animal was placed upon the altar and it was burnt. And it was given up to God, the whole of the animal, but the skin was kept separate. And I said earlier that, you know, I feel very strongly that in Genesis chapter 3, it was an offering that was made by God in Genesis chapter 3. And you remember we were thinking about this a little bit a few weeks ago when we were considering the parable of the two garments. And this is a theme that runs all the way through Scripture when it comes to clothing and it comes to speaking about the righteousness of Christ In Genesis chapter 3, as soon as sin entered the world, as we were thinking a few weeks ago, Adam and Eve, they sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves aprons in verse 7. But when you come to the latter part of the chapter, verse 21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And so I, I think here was the institution of the burnt sacrifice, the burnt offering, Christ Uh, God, we should say, took an animal and he offered it up as a sacrifice. He was showing to man how to offer a, a burnt offering and the skin was used to clothe man, to cover man after his sin. And As I said, it's a picture that runs all the way through the scriptures. You think about some of the parables that Christ taught. You think about the one of the wedding. You remember the, this king puts on a great wedding, great feast, and people are invited and they refuse to come. And then others are called in from the highways and the byways and so on. And when the king comes to the wedding, he finds a man who was not clothed in a wedding garment. And he was cast out and he was banished. And he was bound hand and foot, wasn't he? Into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you see the picture here in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 6 is that this... This skin is taken. It's a picture of Christ. We're clothed with with Christ's righteousness. You can think too of the the parable of the lost son too in Luke 15. The prodigal son, he he returns home. There's a picture of the, the repenting sinner coming to God in faith. And what was put upon him? The best robe. It's a picture of the righteousness of Christ being given You turn with me to Isaiah 61. These verses are wonderful verses. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Listen to these words. This is is all wonderful pictorial language. Listen to it. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord in verse 10 of Isaiah 61. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. And you see, when we come to Christ, our sins being imputed to Christ, as it were, but his righteousness is imputed to us. So when God now looks at us, he no longer sees us in our sin and in our guilt and in our misery and our filth, but he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. You see, we can say, can't we, with the people of Jeremiah's day, the Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Tzikenu. Remember the words that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that tell us of this wonderful 
double imputation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Believer, we stand before God and he doesn't see us, he sees Christ. We're clothed in him. And I think here in Leviticus 1 and verse 7, the flaying of the burnt offering, the keeping apart of the skin, it's a picture to us that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Everything else was offered up. But the skin was kept apart. We are now clothed in his righteousness. And what a wonderful truth that is as believers, isn't it? You see, as believers, we live unto God and we seek to be holy as he is holy, as we we were thinking last week, but we sin and we fail. And so often we come short of his glory every day in thought and word and deed. And yet we have this wonderful truth that when God looks at us, he still sees us in the righteousness of Christ. We come and we confess our sin. We come and we plead with God to cleanse us afresh. But you see, when God, he he looks at us, he sees his son. He doesn't see our sin, he sees his son's obedience. I think that's a wonderful truth. See, no matter how great our sins, no matter how wicked we have been, no matter what we've done in our past, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You notice also something else here about the sacrifice of Christ. The offering of Christ was a complete offering. Verses 7 through to 9 there speak about all these different parts that we've talked about being laid upon the altar. You notice the word order comes up a number of times in these verses. Verse 7, they were to put the wood in order. Then they were to put the parts, the head and the fat in order. There's always order to God's work and God's worship. He doesn't leave things hickledy-pickledy and random. No, there's an order. And then the fire of the altar was to burn all of the animal. You notice that there, all of the animal. Verse uh, 9 mentions that he shall wash him with the priest, shall burn all on the altar. And, and it was to be burnt until nothing of it remains. No part of the animal was to be left. It was to be burnt until there was only ashes and, and if you go into Leviticus chapter 6, we, the, the details were given there to Moses and to, his, to Aaron, I should say, and to his sons in verses 8 through to 13. He says in verse 9, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And it tells us there in verse 10 about the clothes that they were to wear, the garments that they were to put on and take off and so on. And verse 12, And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And so on. And verse 13 says, The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar and it shall never Go out. The priest was to continually keep this fire burning day and night, non-stop. It was to perpetually burn. And so you see, the priests, they, they could never sit down, as we were thinking last week, could they? they, they their job was all night as well, keeping the fire going, making sure that the burnt offering was burnt completely. Well, so often in Scripture, fire is a picture of the wrath of God. 
And the wrath of God fell upon Christ, didn't it? Fire, in a sense, fell from heaven and consumed his son until all of him was burnt. You see, there was nothing left behind. He endured the intense flame of God's anger because of sin. You see, condensed into those hours in Calvary, Christ endured the flames of hell for his people, didn't he? And it was the whole of Christ. You see, I think this is a wonderful truth. Christ did not bear in part our sin. He did not suffer for for only a short time, but he suffered the whole, the whole of our sin. The punishment was all upon him. Remember the hymn writer said, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in parts but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. You see, Christ was bearing all of our sin and he was consumed, as it were, all night until there was nothing left. You see, there's nothing left for us to pay, nothing left for us to do. It was a complete and a perfect sacrifice that Christ offered on our behalf as he endured the flames and the wrath of God for our iniquity. But there's something else in verse 9, and that's the sweetness of Christ's offering. The sweetness of Christ's offering. You notice what it says there was an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. In the first three offerings of Leviticus, the burnt offering here, the meat offering and the peace offering were sweet savour offerings to the Lord. And this offering, as it was burnt upon the altar, it would have produced a smell that was, in a sense, horrendous, that would have risen up off the, off the, off the altar there, that brazen altar. It would have been a horrendous smell, but it tells us here that it was a sweet savour unto the Lord's. Burning flesh is, is a horrible smell. My aunt used to live near a crematorium and it, whenever the wind was in a particular direction, it's a horrible smell. The smell of burning hair, it's a horrible smell. But we're told here that as that offering was offered up, it was a sweet savour unto the Lord. There was a sweetness to it. There was uh, uh, this wonderful satisfaction for God as he smelled that, that smell. Not in, a, you know, not in a sense that God delighted in that smell, but it was he saw this offering, this perfect offering, and it satisfied him. And that expression there, a sweet savour, you could translate it literally a sweet savour of rest. In other words, this, this offering gave rest to God. It satisfied him. And and when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ did not merely come that he might show us how we might satisfy God, but Christ satisfied God himself. His offering was a sweet savour. It brought rest to God. You see, he didn't come to fulfil just in part, part of God's law. He didn't come just to, in, in a sense, take part of the punishment due to our sins. That, you know, and for the rest of our lives, we would have to spend time earning and, and seeking the favour of God's. No, you see, the point is this, that Christ did it all and it was satisfying to God and God now has rest. His his wrath is pacified. He's at rest with his people. There's, There's not one penny that we have left to pay. There's nothing that we can ever do to appease God. We cannot remove our guilt. We cannot begin to satisfy a holy God, but Christ did. 
And so you go back to verse 3, verse 4 rather, and it shall be accepted for him. You see, this, this rose up as a sweet savour to God and it brought rest to God and it was accepted. And when you bring those, tie all these thoughts together, you realise how perfect and complete the offering of Christ is. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. He spells it out so clearly. In actual fact, when you read the offerings and then you come to the New Testament, you realise how much of the New Testament is soaked in the language of the offerings. Ephesians and chapter 5 and verse 2. We read those words there. And walk in love. This is direct, direction to Christians. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and have given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. So do you see here as we, as we pause and we think of Christ's offering, it was a sweet-smelling savour. But what does Paul say? He says, walk in love. Just as Christ did. Christ's death was, a, was an offering that was a sacrifice that was sweet-smelling savour to God. And how much more should our lives be like a, a, a wonderful fragrance that rises up to God's? Just pause and think about this past day. Is there any part of this day that we would be ashamed, as it were, to present to God? We can go through a day, can't we, so heedless, without thinking that God sees us and he sees all that we do. He he sees all that we, we think and imagine in our minds. But our lives should be that sacrifice that's offered up to him that should be like a fragrance that rises and then he should be pleased and satisfied. There's a challenge, isn't there, to us? Be ye therefore followers of God, Paul says. Just like Christ. Christ offered up this one perfect, sweet sacrifice to the Lord. There's one final thing that I want you to notice with me from this passage. We've noticed, we've been through verses just 1 to 9, and that speaks of the offering that was presented from the herd. And you'll notice as we read that there was actually three different offerings that came under the umbrella of the burnt offering. There was, in verses 10 through to 13, you have of the flock, if they were to bring a sheep, and you'll notice that the sheep was very similar in its outworkings to the bullock, in how it was killed and divided up and so on. And then you come to verse 14 through to 17, and it speaks about an offering of fowls, of the birds, And you had an offering of either turtle doves or young pigeons. Just as a side point, the reason why there's two there is because, of course, turtle doves are migratory birds and would not have been available in Israel all the time. So you have these two uh, classes here. You could bring either turtle doves or young pigeons. But this is a massive difference, a colossal difference, between a turtle dove and a bollock in terms of price, in terms of cost. You think through the scriptures, a bullock or an oxen would be the equivalent today to having a tractor. It was the one that did all the work on the farm. You were a wealthy person if you had uh, a team of oxen. And and you, you can see that all the way through scriptures. To offer up an oxen was to offer up, you know, something of colossal price. But a turtle dove, that was... they were so cheap and so readily available. They cost hardly anything. And so we see here that God actually, 
he provides this, this, this offering and he says, come and bring an offering, but he provides for every different class of person. If you were the poorest person, you could bring a turtle dove or a young pigeon. If you were the wealthiest, you could bring an oxen, you could bring a bullock. But all were accepted before God. So it didn't matter whether you were poor. It didn't matter whether you were the meanest person in this world. You could still bring an offering that was accepted and brought satisfaction to God. And God wonderfully provided for for every type of person. I think it's worth pausing here as we think about the turtle dove here. The turtle dove, a picture of innocence and purity in the scriptures so often. It wasn't divided asunder, but it was crushed literally. It was... It was, in a sense, broken. And I often think about Mary and Joseph. You remember Mary and Joseph, when they came for Mary's purification that we we touched on last week, she brought turtle doves, she brought young pigeons. And of course it shows to us that Mary and Joseph were were poor, that Christ was brought up in, in poverty. And of course we read that wonderful verse, don't we, that he became poor for our sakes, didn't he? so that we could become rich. But I think also when you, when you think about that situation, as, as Mary came to the temple and she's cradling Christ in her arms and she brings these turtle doves and they're offered up and the blood is sprinkled, I wonder if she ever pondered in her heart just that one day she was going to stand outside Jerusalem and she's going to look up at her son who's innocent and pure and he's going to be crushed and his blood is going to be shed. It's going to be shed for her because she needed a saviour just as everyone else did and she's going to look up at him. I wonder if she ever thought that as she came and brought those turtle doves. But you see, the point of the passage is that they all brought satisfaction. There's a sufficiency to Christ's offering. You see, despite the differences in the cost, all were acceptable, provision was made and the same is true spiritually for us. We may feel that we are the poorest and, and we are the most neediest of sinner, but we can still come in Christ. Those who feel their spiritual poverty, those who feel their spiritual need, those who feel they're absolutely destitute of anything in this world can come because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. It's sufficient for all who will believe and trust in him, and there may be times, aren't there? There may be times in our spiritual walk when we feel so unworthy. We perhaps fall into a sin, perhaps it's the same sin we fall into over and over again, and we come and we, we're on our knees before God and we just wonder how God could love us and accept us. And we feel so utterly, in a sense, in our spiritual poverty. But we find here that there's a refuge in Christ for all who come. Didn't matter how poor you feel spiritually, you can still come. And you see there at verse 17, even when those birds were offered, it was a sweet savour unto the Lord. Of course, Christ, he's able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. There's a sufficiency to the work of Christ. And this aspect of these three different offerings as we go through the offerings, we'll notice that there's different offerings that are brought and we see this over and over and over again, the sufficiency of the offering of Christ. And so this is just a summary really of the burnt offering this evening, that perhaps there's more that we could have said, but do we see how wonderfully it points to Christ? 
Christ as our Saviour, Christ as our burnt offering, the one who shed his precious blood for us. Well, may we praise God this evening that Christ is our burnt offering.